0: pray. Our Lord, we continue in these blessed words, these living words, these words, Lord, that undergird our, our hope for what is ahead. And Father, we pray that this would not be a rote exercise this morning. Father, you'd give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and as always, hands and feet to live in light of this truth. God, that is our plea as we begin this morning. In the name of your Son, amen. The creation, as you look at those verses again in full, the creation waits with eager longing. The creation groans, that was our study two weeks ago. And Christian, we ourselves, remember that, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, our study last week. Our groan, remember, for adoption, consummation, bodily renewal, that's what we looked at. And of course, our hope, remember, unseen but sure, such we wait eagerly with patience. That's the reality of the Christians living between the already and the not yet. Justified, but not yet glorified. Saved eternally, but not yet complete presently. Thus we groan in hope. We live in weakness, but listen, not left to our weakness. Let's not miss this in this passage. And that reality, help in our weakness, is precisely how Paul continues in verse 26. So let's pick it up then there. And our first point this morning, spirit strength. Spirit strength. Look at the help. Verse 26, likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness. Likewise, look at that word. It could be rendered or in the same way. As the Spirit has helped us before, right? In the same way, and we're going to look at this more in a moment, that aspect of the Spirit help, but that's what it means. In the same way, this is the introduction. So nothing's new here. But first, let's look at our problem, because that's what this verse is telling us. Our problem. As studied, the general state of weakness is the context here, right? The weakness of our present cursed earth and body. The weakness of decay and sin, that's the context. So while we groan in hope, praise God, future secured, we still groan because we are weak now while we wait. And church, that is our present weakness. That is our problem. Weak see it in all. Verse 26 goes on to say, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, unpacking the weakness more. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. This is a characteristic of our weakness. let's pause there for a moment. Our present weakness, says the text, manifests itself in our prayers. Yes, even in our prayers. Do you see that? Even there. In our very plea to God. Think about that. In the very act that many recognize as a demonstration of our weakness, our manifestation of weakness is even in that. So not only do we know that we're weak and we are weak, in the very act of saying we are weak, we are weak, if you follow that. But beloved, what I want us to see here and what we need to see in a text like this, again, to rightly understand, are a few things. Let's look at the verse 26 again. On that, this verse does not say that in weakness that our prayer struggle is not praying enough. Do you see that? The text doesn't say that. That you're weak because you don't pray enough. Look again. The verse does not say our prayer struggle is not using the right words. Do you see that? That's not how the weakness is manifested because you don't use the right words in prayer. Nor does this verse, look at it, tell us that our prayer struggle is simply eloquence or maturity. Does it say that? It doesn't say that. No, look at the word of God. Verse 26 says, our prayer struggle, what? Our weakness manifested in prayer is what? Is that we do not know what, not how, what to pray for as we ought. Do you see that? That's our weakness. We don't know what to pray for. Our prayer struggle is what to pray for. We are weak presently, yes, but even more debilitating is the fact that we are limited. This is what the text is getting at. We're limited in knowledge. Westmount, we lack knowledge to pray fully, do we not? We are not omniscient, right? Means we're not all-knowing. As such, not only do we not know the future, here it is, we do not know what's best for us in our prayers, do we? We don't know the future and we don't know what's best. We may pray this, God, remove this trial from me. What if God has ordained that trial for you, right? What if the trial God decreed so that we could obtain endurance, and through that endurance, we would cultivate godly character, and you're praying for that too, and through that growth, gain hope? Romans 5, 3-5, what if that's the case? We then lack knowledge in such a scenario to pray rightly. I think we see that. We, we may pray this, God, please grant me this or that. But what if this or that, in our finite mind, limited mind, may seem to be best, may seem to be the thing, but really, what if this or that is the very agent that it would turn out to be the cause of our ultimate harm, right? How many of us look back and realize, praise God, we didn't get what we asked for? Consider that. We may pray, listen, beloved, we may pray at times directly against things that are best for us. Have you thought about that? That sobers us as we consider prayer this morning. Because of our lack of knowledge, our weakness, that's it, in context, we are weak. Even as we pray and with what to pray for, because of our weakness, we cannot know what to pray. Because we are finite, limited, we're not infinite, we do not know what we ought to pray for, says the text. Now, if we just leave it there, that may make praying seem futile, right? You might say, especially if you're here and have arrived cynically this morning, well, why pray? And we groan as such. However, as we keep reading, which we almost, always must do, we see the response is not to stop praying. Let's not miss that overarching today. We continue. Read again verse 26. Look at this. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. You see that? It doesn't say, because you're weak, beloved, stop praying, because you don't know what to pray for. No, it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In our weakness, we do not stop praying. Instead, we pray with help, Spirit help. And to be clear, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, also known as the helper, John 16, verse 7. The Spirit here, as has been the case in this chapter, is our help in weakness. And yes, throughout Romans 8, we've studied this ongoing present ministry of the Holy Spirit. This ministry, here it is, of sustaining the believer in hope while we await full redemption. That's the ministry in this chapter. Let's revisit chapter 8, verses 2 to 8. Remember, we learned that the Holy Spirit enables us to obey God's law. What a ministry. The Holy Spirit enables us... To obey God's law. Verses 9 to 13, we learn that the Holy Spirit subdues our fallen nature. Critical ministry. In verses 14 to 17, we learn that the Holy Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. Often against our felt experience, right? Am I really yours? Well, the Spirit bears witness and says, You are Abba, Father. In verses 18 to 23, we learned that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, guarantees our inheritance. That's quite a ministry when you think about it from verses 2 to 23. But here in verse 26, we see that the Holy Spirit also has a ministry to us in prayer. Ministers to us in prayer. And church, that help is not a prayer crutch or a handy tip. Spirit help is perfect help. The Spirit is our help in prayer. You ask how? Well, we keep reading. Look, interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. This is just so rich. Here, and I pray we can think together through this wonderful passage. There's intercession there, so there's interceding. Now, Paul is going to pick this up in verse 27. So we're not leaving this. We're going to come back to this in verse 27. He's going to tell us what that looks like. But first, note this, how the intercession, the manner is with groanings too deep for words. Groans. The Spirit itself groans. But listen, and I think intuitively we would get this, not with groans like ours, right? This is the Holy Spirit. So not, what is characteristic of our groans? Futility. A lack of strength. Suffering. We've noted that our groans are bubbled up, audible cries so often, right? Deep down and because they're groaning, they just bubble up into an audible shout at times. Groans with nowhere else to turn but to come up and to come out. And that is our weakness. But not the Holy Spirit, beloved. Not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not groan like that. The Holy Spirit helps us how? Look, with groanings too deep for words. With groanings too deep for words. In the original... That, too deep for words, literally reads this way, no talk, with no talk groanings. That's what it says. This is unutterable, unexpressed groans. This is an altogether different groaning than what we know as human beings. And this is exceptionally helpful for us this morning. Just in one verse. This is perfect groaning. Truly helpful groaning. Divine groaning. The groans of the Holy Spirit. And you should be asking at this point, what are the groans of the Holy Spirit, right? You should be asking that. Well, let's be clear first, as always, on what they're not, okay? For one, they are not the gift of speaking in tongues. They're not that. It's not just something we want to to say or prefer. Some believe tongues, glossa, in the Greek, in the original language, in the New Testament, literally means a tongue, A known, cognitive, recognized foreign language, a tongue. Here, and I would say this, regardless of your take on the sign gifts, the verse says what? No talk. Right? Very clear, it says no talk. This is talk, this is groaning, look, too deep for words. This is in fact the opposite of tongues. Two, this groaning of the Holy Spirit is not limited to just some Christians. Maybe you've been taught that. There's no limit here on who the Holy Spirit helps. Just the gifted, just the godly, just the mature. Do you see that in the text? It doesn't say that at all. Or that the Holy Spirit only helps the so-called second blessed. That's not here. Third, the groaning of the Holy Spirit is not some special revelation. Yes, I get it. No talk. But I just got to get into a closet and make it quiet. This is not the secret things of God that only some possess with a Holy Spirit bat phone. This is not contemplative prayer. Get quiet and then write down what comes into our mind. Quite frankly, that's dangerous and will always lead to heresy. Beloved, prayer is what? Fundamentals. is about us talking to God, is it not? It's not about God talking to us in some extra revelation, is it? And if we're looking for that, regardless of your motivation this morning, you have it right in front of you. I want to hear from God? Well, we read the Bible. We read the Bible. Listen, this is no talk. This is Holy Spirit groaning that's too deep for words. Lastly, we need to note that the groaning of the Holy Spirit is not like our groans. We've said this already. We're saying it again, and we'll have more to say about this. Our groan, remember, springs out of futility and our weakness. Let's be clear about that. Our groan is the cry of wanting to but not being able to. Our groans are the cries of limitation, remember, and impotence. As such, it's impossible for the Holy Spirit to groan like that. Is that not true? Holy Spirit can't groan like that. The Holy Spirit is not subjected to futility. The Holy Spirit is not weak. The Holy Spirit is not impotent. The Holy Spirit is not limited. The Holy Spirit, God himself, is perfect, powerful, infinite, and altogether capable And while the sense of groaning, we recognize this reading God's word, verse by verse, while the sense of groaning with the creation, with we ourselves, and now the Holy Spirit, while that sense of groaning, that connective tissue, certainly connects each group in context, it is the contrast of the groaning, not the similarity that's in view here. And how do we know that? We just read, this is, look at it, but the Spirit, verse 26. This is creation groan, our groan, contrasted to the Spirit groans. Church, the groaning of the Holy Spirit is completely unlike our groaning. Groans that are similar to ours, right? If that was the case with the Holy Spirit, listen to me, if it was similar to our groans, futile groans, impotent groans, limited groans, they would only compound the problem, wouldn't they? On a practical level. As such, groans like ours are of no help at all. That's the point Paul is saying. No, what we have is help, divine, heavenly, spirit help, by way of spirit strength. And this is perfect help, Christian, for your futility, your impotence, your limitation, your weakness. Now that sounds good, but you should still be asking, how exactly does the Holy Spirit help me? To answer that, we return to our lingering question, what are these Holy Spirit groans? And the next point, we'll do that. Spirit supplication, verse 27. There's just so much here. Let's put our thinking caps on and and just dig in to this magnificent verse together. Let's do this. So rich. Verse 27 says this. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I pray you just read that and realize, wow, that is a pregnant verse. There's just so much going on there. So God help us as we look to exposit it. The Holy Spirit helps us in prayer. And that help is by way of unutterable groans. And those groans and their process are now further explained right here. As you look at verse 27 again. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So we just stop there for a moment. What's going on? Someone is mining your heart. You see that? Someone is searching and mining your heart. Consider your own efforts to do that. Your futile efforts, your impotent efforts. Here's your first comfort today. Someone, and we know it's divine, is mining your heart. So good. Good. He who searches hearts. And who is that? Who is working in concert with the Holy Spirit? Who is the one searching heart, working in concert with the Holy Spirit? Who is the one who is searching hearts here? Well, let's first consider the Old Testament. David charged his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28.9. He said this, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind for, listen, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought, right? Solomon then in turn prayed in 1 Kings 8, O Lord God of Israel, verse 39, for you you only, listen, know the hearts of all the children of mankind, right? The Lord, the God of Israel, who was God's firstborn, Exodus 4:22, he searches hearts. The testimony, by the way, not just of Israel's kings, but throughout ancient Israel. Hear the psalmist. Psalm forty four twenty one. 21, God knows the secrets of the heart. Those are the hidden things. God knows the hidden things of your heart. We heard Ken read Psalm 139 this morning, a psalm that says basically this in totality, God, you have searched me, God, you know me, God, you know my heart. Proverbs 15, 11 teaches that the hearts of mankind, look at your image here, lay open before God himself. In other words, what's the illustration? Christian, you and I try really hard to not let anyone get into our heart, right? For whatever our fears may be, whatever our anxieties, they're laid open bare for Yahweh. You see that? God knows them. He knows what's in your heart. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 12, verse 3, o Lord, you know me. You see me. You test my heart. Later in Jeremiah's letter, and as a credential for judging the sin of Judah, God says this in chapter 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. In Israel, we learn that indeed. God, the Father, searches hearts. That's clear, isn't it? Very clear. But, as we keep moving right, and arrive at the New Testament, we also see this. Acts 1, as the apostles prayed for Judas' replacement, they prayed this in verse 24. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show who you have chosen. The Lord in the New Testament, the early church, was still God, but yes, listen to this. The Apostle Paul, warning about external judgments in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, said this. Listen, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, you hear Lord and say, "Uh uh-huh, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Did you hear that? Lord Here to Paul was the God who was coming soon. He was the one, the light that would expose the darkness of hearts and disclose the purposes of the heart. Who is the God who is coming soon? Who is the light? Well, the same one declaring his omniscience in the human heart. In Revelation 2, verse 23, this Lord says to Thyatira, the church, all the churches will know that I am he who what? Qualifier? Who searches mind and heart. And again, who is that speaking to the seven churches? Westmount. he's the same one that even makes approaching God possible in prayer. He's the same one who is our great mediator, our great intercessor. Hebrews 7, verse 25. He is Jesus Christ, and he is God. Yes, God, God the Son, and mark that, who is working in perfect harmony with God the Spirit, who is operating in concert for the believer's good in prayer here, who is searching hearts. God is. God God the Father is. God the Son is. Yes, prayer is, and here it is. Let's grab a hold of this. It's an inter Trinitarian exercise. That's what prayer is. He who searches hearts, God the Father in Israel, God the Son in the church, He, the triune God, searches hearts. This is, can we grab this? Communication within the Godhead. And what we cannot miss here is the overlap to be expected in the Godhead. Consider the Trinitarian roles and what is presented here in prayer. Track with me. God the Father searches hearts, and he knows the mind of the Spirit. God the Son searches hearts, and he intercedes on our behalf before the Father. And God the Spirit intercedes for us, look at it, within us, enabling us to pray as we ought. Beloved, this is the majestic Trinitarian symphony that happens in prayer. The Godhead working in perfect concert together, and note this without our work at all. Did you catch that? Without our work at all. Note, everything in effective prayer here in true prayer is all about the triune God, all Him. Not your right words, not maturity. Not right blessing, not this, not that here on earth. It's all the triune God. We do not even know our own hearts. We are self-deceived, but God knows. We cannot approach God on our own, but we can through God the Son. We have absolutely no idea what to pray for. But the Spirit does, and see this, end of verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The will of God, Westmount. We make it so elusive, don't we? The will of God. We like to bondage ourselves to our views and opinions on the will of God. Here, the will of God in full grasp noted by way of the Spirit. And the Spirit within us, amazing Christian, whose mind is fully known by God here intercedes for us, which means an internal intercession that's aligning our hearts to accord with God's will. Did did you grab that? An internal intercession going on in your heart, Christian, to align your heart with God's will. That is true if you are in Christ here today. Incredible. That's it. We have no part in this. The true engine of prayer is all God. C.H. Dodd said it this way, so good. Prayer is the divine in us appealing to the divine above us. That is indeed prayer. God, from start to finish, moving us to pray, searching us as we pray, and giving us by way of the Spirit what to pray for according to his very will. Now, Christian, I ask you this morning, could there be a greater encouragement than that in your prayer life? Could there be any greater encouragement? The answer is no, there can't be. Just the reality of what prayer is. Saints, prayer is spirit supplication. Prayer is not left to you and I and our soul weakness. All praise to God. And with that, let's just firm up, before we go further, a proper theology of prayer. You could say it this way, a proper theology of prayer. It's this. It is the Spirit who is in us that intercedes before our hearts, along with Christ who intercedes for us before the Father, that offers to God, by way of that Spirit, what we ought. That's prayer. That is prayer. Church, prayer is triune work. In fact, prayer understood rightly, listen, is not our words to God at all. Now listen, before you get too carried away with that, we use words, of course, right? But that's not the point, is it? That's not the point. Prayer is words exercised by us, but the point of this text is not that. It's what lies behind those words. Prayer and right prayer is instead this, Christian. It's the act of recognition. That's what this text is telling us. It's that ongoing act of recognition. It's recognizing and responding to all that God alone offers to very weak creatures. Brothers and sisters, what help? That's prayer, spirit supplication. And we can't leave these verses without considering their implications, right? Because we all have a prayer life, and I know for a fact, because this is the human condition, the Christian condition, we are all struggling to different degrees in our prayer life, aren't we? So we can't leave such rich verses without considering their implication. Let's glean all the help practically out of the Spirit's help. And beloved, when it comes to prayer, there's just so much here. could spend, as one of you said, a whole series on this. But let's just try and crystallize it into things that we're going to take away now that we have that theology of prayer cemented. So let's end with these helps as we consider spirit help in prayer. Number one, look with me. The text here presupposes that there's indeed a right way to pray. Did you catch that? The text presupposes that there is a right way to pray. Do you see that? So there's a right way, a way we ought to pray, right? Right? We learned today that there's a way we should be praying as we ought. And we also just learned that we are incapable of praying as we ought. Do we see that? Now, I want you to think for a moment. If that's true for us, Christian, with the Holy Spirit in us, what of the unbeliever? So apart from Trinitarian access, we would most certainly be praying wrongly, right? And hence, one must grapple with the implications. What of the prayer of an unbeliever? Well... That unbeliever does not have access to the Father, through the Son, Jesus Christ, do they? That unbeliever does not have the intercession of the Spirit going on in their own heart, do they? Yet believer, so that answers the question about prayers for an unbeliever, but believer, this is no automatic for you to say, well, I've got those. Praise God and on my way. It's no automatic for us. We may have Spirit help but how often do we choose self-help for ourselves? How often? Galatians 5.16 is a command for a reason. It says, walk by the Spirit, which suggests, like every command does, there's another way that you can walk. And what is that in Galatians 5? The flesh. The flesh. The Christian can do that, can choose that way. Being disobedient to the command of God. Beloved, the very next verse in context in Galatians 5.17 tells us that the Spirit's desire is not just different to the flesh, but what? Let me read it, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Right? Christian, do not pray in the flesh. You say, say, what does that mean? It means you don't pray according to the flesh's economy. And we grab that just from that chapter. Let's stick in that same chapter in Galatians 5. The Galatian letter, let's just pick three of those flesh works that are helpful. The Galatian letter goes on to tell us what works of the flesh look like. Again, one, sensuality. Don't pray sensual prayers. Now, I could do a whole thing on the touchy-feely kind of stuff that people do, the emotive stuff in prayers, but I won't touch that. Here, you pray for what you can see. This is our sensual prayer. You pray for what you see. It's materials. It's goods. It's the scene. Your prayers are laced with them. And what did we learn last week about the unseen? The, un- or the unseen is where our eyes should be set. Recognize circumstances happen in materials, don't they? The point is, what are you praying for? What is your... Your senses, what are they going after? What do they want? Is it for a material or a good? Or is it strength for whatever goods come your way? Right? Beloved, sensual prayers are not prayers. They're selfish requests in disguise. Next, consider idolatry, another flesh work. Here your, praise, your prayers go something like this. God, just give me this one thing. Everything else is okay. If you just give me this one thing and then this, we got to salt our prayer with this. That's all I'm asking. Just this one thing and this one time. I haven't asked for a lot, have I? Just one thing. Like some bargaining with God, if that's even possible. Really, a desperate plea to never lose your idol. That's what that is. It's not prayer, that's idolatry. And you repent of that. Consider anger. Here, prayers are given up in fits that are absolutely unbecoming of a saint. And they go something like this. God, you understand why I'm so mad. You know, you know why I'm flaming mad right now. I'm going to talk to you because that's what a Christian does. Listen, that kind of oration may appease the flesh, but it's not a prayer. Such prayers are irreverent at best and sin compounding at worst. Beloved, calm down, repent, and then go to God with spirit help. Yes, there are many ways not to pray. We can include many, many more. And let's apply this then. Only through the Spirit and walking by the Spirit can we pray as we ought. So, unbelievers and believers in sin will not experience, they cannot experience true sin, can they? They can't. Which brings us to our second application prayer is not request, but recognition. We've touched on this a few times this morning, but we need now to apply it directly. Prayer is not request, it's recognition. What do we mean by that? Prayer is more than knowing that we're incapable of fulfilling a prayer need. In other words, it's not just praying because you're unable to make something happen. I'm going along, thank you God, and we kind of maybe don't acknowledge him a lot you get to a point you hit a wall oh i can't do this well time to tune into god and make he's got to help me do this that's not prayer it means in prayer we recognize we have absolutely no idea what is coming or as he said what's best for us it's a recognition of that then that's recognition it's not request and it is that recognition that moderates the christian's prayer or at least it should So listen, beloved, when you go to pray, you're not trying to make some appeal to change God's mind in prayer. You don't just live a really good day and then go to the Lord in prayer and say, Okay, now hear me out, Lord. This is everything that Jesus says when he taught us to pray. Remember Matthew 5.10. He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Not my will, not yours, God's. Listen to James 4.15, a true, and this is the right understanding that should frame our prayers. Instead, James says, you ought to say this, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Speaking of our boasts, it can pop up in our prayers. Beloved, I suggest to you when you pray that you remind yourself of this. Maybe this can be great framework for your prayers. God You are omniscient, not me. God, you know the future, not me. God, you know if this trial is best for me, not me. So, God, help me never to pray against your will in my weakness. That's what we pray, right? Finally, the reality of Trinitarian concert and communication and prayer. Thirdly, it's its own motivation to pray the reality of this triune activity, this incredible reality that's going on in the Godhead, that alone, and note this, not any circumstance on earth must be your motivation to pray. You say, but there's a lot of stuff going on here. There is indeed, but we know how that does with our motivations. Church, no amount of prayer guilt can motivate you to pray rightly. That's just not the way it works. No prayer steps, no prayer chain, no prayer post-it notes will really stir to this kind of prayer. It just won't. So it's not a matter of listening to teaching that says, just pray more, we need to pray more. That's not it. Listen, Westmount, we do need to pray more. Don't walk away saying, you know, Jason said we don't have to pray more. No. We do need to pray more. Absolutely, that should be a given. But just telling each other we need to pray more is not the right motivation for a true, deep, and lasting prayer life. And I submit to you all of our experiences. Is that not true? How's that working for all of us? No, it's more than that. Brothers and sisters, as we learn in these verses, the motivation to pray is God. The motivation to pray is not your job, or your circumstance, or this, or that, or an earthly thing. Or anything else. The motivation to pray rightly is God. Let me qualify that. The motivation to pray is the work and the person of the triune God. That's your motivation to pray. Who God is and what he can do. Like evangelism, where the sovereignty of God in salvation doesn't cause us to be passive Robots saying, Well, God's going to work it all out. The sovereignty of God and salvation fuels us. It propels us to say, I got to get out there. As the Lord told Paul, I have many in this city that are mine. So too in our prayer. This should fuel us. It should fuel us. The reality that it is the triune God alone doing the work, that is, beloved, its own motivation. To know that prayer, here it is, is a window to triune activity. For sure, prayer remains an act of obedience on our part, and we must do. We must. It's a command. Yet it is also true that it is God's good pleasure to work out his will through prayer. Consider that this morning. He doesn't have to do it that way, but he, he has, and he's prescribed that. As we see in these verses, our prayer is driven by that reality. That it is God who searches hearts. And God who intercedes for us. And God who ensures that our prayers are according to his will. Westmount, as we close, I ask you, does that reality not stir you to pray? Does it not stir you to pray? You and I are weak. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And we certainly don't know what's best for us tomorrow. But God does. And when we pray, what an access to that work. What's astonishing truly is that God condescends to have the prayers of the weak, like us, be vehicles for the Almighty to do what only he can do. Isn't that astonishing? That he would condescend to work through us for his sovereign plan. Prayer is like having a front row seat to the heavenly symphony and the edifying grandeur. That's prayer. But a viewing, beloved, that's not optional. It's a seat that is needed for each one of us every single hour. We can do nothing in prayer but pray. And we can do nothing without prayer. That's now Pray and respond in song to that end. Pray with me. Father, we do ask and beg in the name of your Son, by way of the intercession of the Spirit within us, Lord, that you will and work your good pleasure in our lives in light of what we've learned today. Oh God, we pray as we struggle in our weakness and our limitation that we would be encouraged that it is not about us, but it is all about you. So Father, we do pray now that you would indeed in our prayers, by way of our prayers, by way of the Holy Spirit in our prayers through the intercession of Christ, that you would do what only you can do. That we ask and pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.